I'm Jonathan Bastian, and this is KCRW's Life Examined, a show about science, philosophy, faith, and finding meaning in the modern-day world. This week, preparing for and celebrating that which we hide from, death. I talk with palliative care specialist Dr. B.J. Miller about the beauty he's experienced caring for those at the end of their lives. A lot of people find peace in the realization that they are natural creatures and that death is a natural phenomenon. And the more they can touch into that nature, the more at peace they feel. Later, what can we learn from other cultures about funeral and burial rites and the importance of grieving? Engagement with the dead body itself is primal, it's timeless, and it can help your grief journey so much. Because that's what humans have been doing for tens of thousands of years in all different cultures. Death, bereavement, and confronting the great unknown. All ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. Today on the show, we'll be discussing a topic that many may find uncomfortable, depressing, or maybe even burdensome. Death and dying, as we know, are a natural part of life's cycle. And during the pandemic, many of us have been forced to question our own mortality or have had loved ones taken from us. So how can we prepare for the inevitable when our culture is so averse to talking about it? Many cultures see dying as a continuance of life. Funeral rituals and preparing the body adds to that sense of comfort and acceptance where death is embraced and revered instead of feared. We'll explore that. But first, we'll hear from a doctor and palliative caregiver who is trying to reimagine the way we die in America. Dr. B.J. Miller is from the University of California, San Francisco, and joins us now. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Good to be here. You know, I think of this this wild moment that we're in and what's happening with a pandemic as it continues even now. And in terms of your work, I, I keep getting these images of people that have been forced into these uh, unexpected, unfortunate end-of-life situations in hospitals not surrounded by loved ones, um, you know, or, or kind of what's been happening in nursing homes with populations wiped out. And I just wanted to take a moment and pause on that because you're somebody that thinks so humanely about ways to die, about ways to create um, a meaningful end of life. So as you've been hearing these stories, I just want to know what's been going through your mind in relation to the work that you do every day? Well, it's big. There's big stuff happening, and there's a lot to say to your question, Jonathan. I mean, I think we could look at it from sort of an individual point of view or a sort of a systems issues. There are a couple of ways we could we can open this up. In some ways, I'll just start by saying, you know, for those of us who are in palliative care and certainly in hospice work, existential crises happen to all of us as individuals at some point throughout our lives but this this is ha- this is sort of an existential crisis at scale or an existential crisis on mass so it's it's different it feels i mean normally when any one of us is going through something the world kind of keeps on spinning around and people the momentum continues and in some levels that's reassuring for us when we're in the throes ourselves to know that the kind of the, you know there's a normal out there somewhere and it's continuing right now though the ground is shaking for for everybody really differently to different degrees and details of course matter but for the most part this is happening to us as a population so so it's it's even more chaotic even more frenzied even harder to find your bearings in some ways the the upshot however is that one of the hard things about going through an existential crisis uh in your in your own life is is the isolation you can feel and how it's easy to feel like you're the only one and and no one really understands what's happening to you or with you or or in your life. And it can feel extremely lonely. So the upshot here, however, is that there's 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 a pathway for for an explosion of empathy because this is happening to all of us to some degree or another. Uh, Ostensibly, we're also therefore poised and primed to go through this together and, and not feel the loneliness and isolation on some level. So, but that's a little theoretical. I think one thing to get across here, right out of the shoots here, Jonathan, is, you know, as I say something like that, that that might be fine when we're looking back on this period and we're learning lessons, et cetera. Um, But right now, I think first and foremost, let's make sure that we're all 
we're not trying to put a bow on this too soon. This is not over. A lot of us are still suffering in all sorts of ways. We've got a ways to go. So I don't want to jump too quickly to the lessons learned. Um, but those, but from a macro point of view, that, that is, I think, a really important point, this idea of an existential crisis en masse. And, and one more thing to say about that is eventually we will be learning a lot if, if, if we allow ourselves, if we dare to look. There's going to be a ton to learn. And any of us who work with folks who are at the end of life as individuals, you, you know, you, you see people coming to having epiphanies. You see people understanding certain things about themselves in the world, letting go of certain things that weren't serving them, etc. It can be a real cathartic, painful as hell, but cathartic too. And so let's let's keep an eye out with for each other, with each other, about how we actually want to be changed by this. There's an opportunity to let ourselves be changed. We are going to be changed, so there's a lot to kind of roll with and discover about ourselves in the process. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. And and I wonder in the process of this though, do you do you find that um, this moment that we're in, again, with so many people being kind of thrust into this existential moment unexpectedly, it's happening in hospitals, it's happening quickly on respirators in isolation, that there is, um, that, that something is being exposed in our Western model of how we deal with end of life that, that is maybe kind of, kind of coming forth right now? Oh, yes. I mean, this is where, again, I... There, I can you can just feel like again those of us who work in certain aspects of the healthcare system, specifically palliative care and hospice, and other areas too. The fault lines in the healthcare system have been obvious for a while, um, and it's 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 troubling. I think a lot of people in my field have been concerted around systems change because we know the healthcare system and the social systems that go around it that as well intended as they may be. Um, the way they've been designed and tacked together makes the experience of dealing with the healthcare system in particular um, jarring and jolting. And the, sadly, for those of us who work within the system, we know that the healthcare system itself can end up becoming the source of the pain in all sorts of, of ways. Of course, that's tragic. I mean, that's, that's the unnecessary suffering, the gratuitous suffering, the mindless suffering. That's just um, because we weren't paying attention or we didn't have the political will to design a system that functions better or whatever it is. The system's issues are jarring and jolting because they're man-made, but there too is the opportunity. They're invented issues and we can reinvent, we can change the system. And, and I do hope I think I don't you know I think for many of us this the faults the problems in the system have never been more obvious and the need to change has never been more pressing uh, we've known this with the aging population that trouble like this was coming that we were going to be dealing with a, a, an enormous segment of the population who had issues that were not fixable and medicine's really pretty good at fixing things not so great at 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 managing things that can't fix so we've known this bulge is here and coming and i do think covid is uh, is pulling the covers on issues that have been smoldering beneath the surface that some but not all of us have seen and now maybe all of us are seeing them well then you know let, let me ask you this because i know it's been so central to your work and your research you've spent uh, countless hours with folks that are nearing the end of their life what do people want as they prepare to die and and maybe how is that not being met in this current moment well so in general there's there's let's make sure to know there's a ton of individual variation this is why the subject is so interesting and this field is so interesting is there is no well there's there are there are patterns to recognize in human behavior and and what we uh, what we might wish for there's a ton of individual variation and that's where that's where some of the joy is i mean we get to you know this is we get to have a sort of a a carte blanche when it comes to our death there's an opportunity there for us to approach the end of our lives and and in ways that we wish as individuals we can express ourselves differently we can go out differently so so let me just caveat that there's a lot of variation to this question but for the most part again there are so patterns and if we look at folks uh, in groups and cohorts over time most people for example most people want to be at home when they die and by home i think most people mean not the hospital and not the nursing home 
uh, dying at home uh, is doable, especially with hospice, but it's also very hard. Um, so when most of the population, you know, figures often quoted are 70 to 80% of people say they want to die at home. Um, so that's one key theme. But again, here, what I really think people mean is they want to die in familiar settings where they're comfortable, surrounded by people they love, uh, wherever they call home. Um, in, in other words, they also want to have a minimum of sort of gear and, and machines propping them up for the most part. I think a lot of people find peace in the realization that they are natural creatures and that death is a natural phenomenon. And the more they can touch into that nature, the more at peace they feel as a rule. You know, some of us are, see ourselves as fighters and quote-unquote want to go down swinging and the idea of an ICU death with desperate measures happening is, is fitting, you know, so to each their own. But uh, to answer your question, get back to your question, you know, dying at home, dying in a more natural way, dying comfortable, comfortably enough so that you can have good time with people you care about, so you can think about anything, you know, something besides your pain for a moment here and there. Um, these are rules of thumb that are that are that hold pretty pretty true. Um, people want to be at peace with their loved ones. Um, the idea of closure. I mean, closure is. I think it's important to note closure is an invented notion. You know, nature do, nature doesn't promise us closure except for the idea of birth and death. But a lot of us, just in, as social creatures, um, thinking about our legacy. What do we leave behind? Do have we set our friends and family up to do well into their into through their mourning period and and, and living on, uh, that kind of stuff. So a lot of people, if you ask them what's important to them at the end of life, they'll tell you, well, I just want to make sure I'm not a burden to my family, or I want to make sure my family are okay. These kinds of things, and it makes sense because I think a lot of what's dying, you know, what's dying is the ego, and the more each of us can find a way to to love life outside of ourselves, beyond ourselves but inclusive of ourselves, the easier death is on us, the more readily we can, we can handle it. And also we have this sort of faith in that statement that, that, that the, we're leaving the world maybe a little bit better than we found it, and especially for people we care about. So anyway, these are some mega themes that you'll see across people, no matter what their cultural identification or age or wealth status, etc. These are themes that, that, are, that pop up continuously. Yeah. Or, 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 or uh, consistently. And, and honestly, it's it, as you were going through those, I, I, I felt a little heartbroken thinking of the amount of people that probably didn't get to enjoy any aspects of those in the preceding months and probably in the months to come. And it makes me again think about the healthcare system breakdown. But I mean, that just seems so front and center right now. Don't you agree? I absolutely agree. And let me say... Um, uh, there is <laughs> the last thing any of us wants to do is shame each other uh, as we're heading off the planet. Um, but back to this sort of a 30,000 foot sort of systems view. Um, this is exactly why, whether it's COVID or the veritable hit by a bus or whatever it is, the idea of a sudden death of suddenly just being, being here and then not being here. Um, you know, we know you know, intellectually, that that's always possible. Um, but this is a problem when we endlessly, when we sort of tap, make the subject matter taboo, it's harder to talk about. The healthcare system doesn't make it any easier to talk about it. Doctors aren't trained to talk about it. So we end up kind of deferring the inevitable um, in, in, and until it's really too late. And so, I mean, one of the takeaways right now here is you know, we should all be doing our advanced directives. We should all be naming our healthcare proxy. We should all be thinking about our mortality, if only to make sure we are present for the life we have. These are less lessons that have been in the population for eons that are easily forgotten because death is such an obnoxious topic, especially in modern society. But here we go. I mean, this is why, because we can be swept away in an instant. And this is why it would be so helpful to have had these conversations with loved ones before and document our wishes, etc. So one of the big takeaways here is to turn our attention, especially when we're healthy, to something like advanced care planning, our wills, our health care proxy, the veritable putting our affairs in order. It is, we should all be doing that, especially when we're healthy, because you just never know.
So I, I again here, I just want to pause. I, that if I sound like I'm wagging my finger at telling people they should have known better, I, I don't mean that. But let, but I do think this is one of the ma- major lessons that's being proven to us as we speak. What about the family structure and all of this? I mean, you mentioned that um, people want to be with their loved ones. They want to be home. But but I think what we see so much of now is that grandparents get get put into homes or there's very little multi-generational living. Do you, do you think that there is some merit to returning to kind of an older family structure where, where generations live together, where death, therefore, is also a little bit more present in a household? Oh, for sure. I mean, one of the ways we've gotten so divorced from this aspect of reality is because it's just not in front of us. I remember when I did my internship in Milwaukee, uh, a lot of the patients that I was seeing were coming in off the farms. And uh, and it was a really fascinating thing to witness. Folks who were who came into the hospital from a farm, if death was coming, there was plenty of sadness and tears and it was not easy but those guys because they were around the cycle of life all the time and i'm making generalizations here but it held true in my experience but one way or another if you find yourself around the cycle of life if you know if you're if, if death is part of your daily existence of course you're going to become more familiar with it more comfortable with it and you're not going to be surprised that you die um, and so these families would come in, of course, it would be hard. And again, you know, or not again, I haven't said this yet, but sadness is not the enemy. I'm not trying to crowd sorrow out of this picture. There's some, there's a lot of warmth to sorrow, but when you put in recrimination, guilt, um, lack of attention, willful ignorance, if you layer all that stuff on top, it gets a hell of a lot more painful and unnecessarily so. So back to your point, yes, if we can find a way to reacquaint ourselves with nature, and I think this is happening in many ways in society right now, and it's high time, whether it's the environment or whether it's around the end of life, one way or another, we're revisiting ourselves as uh, our relationship to nature and as natural beings. Somewhere, somewhere along the way in 20th century America, we kind of got seduced into thinking it was her man versus nature, as though we were separate from nature. And of, of, <laughs> of course we're not. But if you look at our structures and our languaging and the social cues, you would, you would, you would think that we could somehow sidestep nature and even maybe even one-up it. And so then it comes to account at the end of life, and then we have all our sort of house of cards comes crashing down. So yes, back to your point, if we can find a way to keep death in our sight, in our field of view, in our, in our sense of reality, the reality that we're designing for and working in and working through, then yeah, death's going to come. It will be hard, but it's not going to be a tragedy. Um, so yes, the other thing I think, too is not only should we just kind of get you know used to the idea of death but there's as, as, as with anything that you welcome into your sights and you get to know whether it's aging or loss in general death there's a lot of beauty in it too there's something very gorgeous about aging about the body using itself up it also helps us realize that we human beings are not just our bodies and there's just there's a lot of wisdom and beauty waiting for us when we turn our attention to these bigger deeper truths and so i do want to make the point here that it's not just about like we shouldn't just like okay twist my arm i'll acknowledge death and i think what we've seen again and again with folks who dare to get acquainted with the subject earlier in life is it's a very enriching subject you know, what makes anything precious but that it ends, right? So the more you can kind of come to terms with the finitude of things, the more you can appreciate them too. So there's a lot of, a lot of beauty waiting for us, not, not just a lack of tragedy waiting for us. How do you see the role of, of palliative care, of hospice, kind of as we, as we come out the other end of this, or maybe even as we stay in it for a while? Because you know, it was so interesting to also hear you talk about um, how a lot of Western doctors, say, working in the ICU or, or, or what have you, are not comfortable with the conversations. But the more I've gotten to know in your work, you you almost remind me of like a therapist sitting by somebody's bed and having those conversations. And yet you're also a doctor. So I sense there's something in that connection between the client and the healthcare provider or the doctor that, that seems of kind of uh, vital importance here. Oh, totally. I mean, I think, 
you know, I think a lot of us talk about, um, you know, one way to understand the, 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 the problems of the healthcare system, um, because everyone I've ever known who's gone into healthcare, who's gone into debt and the years it takes to train, I mean, people, the amount of caring human beings that populate the healthcare system, that work within the healthcare system is, is awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping, shocking. It's gorgeous to think about the trouble people go to for the honor to care for another human being. And so, yes, yeah, so how do we reconcile that truth with the truth that oftentimes the healthcare system actually hurts people and um, actually promotes pain in some ways, et cetera, et cetera? Well, so there must be something in the way it's designed to, to reconcile those two points. And one way to understand that is to say uh, that the healthcare system was designed around diseases. Uh, and since for the last 150-ish years, that's been true. The basic, the general thesis was disease, disease causes suffering. If we humans get smart enough, we can combat and defeat disease, and therefore we'll all live happily ever after, maybe even forever, is sort of the supposition. But the idea, bottom line, is that, the, that disease is our focus, not the persons living with the disease. That's such a key distinction, as you can imagine. And if you make that little shift to focusing on the people who have to live with disease, if that's our focus in healthcare, well, then we're not going to just be about objective measures and tests and interventions. We're also going to be paying a lot of attention to the relationships because that's, that's where the action is in human beings. That's where the healing is. That's where the meaning is to be found is us humans relating with each other, ourselves, and the environment. So as soon as you pull that into your scope, well then of course, sitting with your patients, being a fellow human being, disclosing your own pains to some degree, shedding tears, emoting, being affected. I mean, one of the kindest things I think any of us can do for each other is to be affected by each other. Um, That shared vulnerability is a very gorgeous bond. Uh, that we, for some reason, keep covering up and um, obliterating accidentally or otherwise. So, um, so yes, back to your point, you're darn right. And it's not just me. I'm not special here. This is palliative care. I'm just exercising what I learned in palliative care. And I'm also exercising what I learned when I was a patient, that the relationships are king and the rest follows. I'll say one more thing about that to make that point. I've met so many people over the years who share with me some disappointment with this or that doctor. And you know what's fascinating to me? To they're all, It's always the same. They are never, no one I've ever met is angry at their doctor for not curing cancer or somehow making them live forever. Where people are angry with their doctors is for the abandonment moment. My doctor, we were so close when I was, but the second I stopped chemo, Knock doctor, never return another call. It's like I never existed or whatever else. And so that just helps us understand the paramount of the paramount importance of the relationship over and above whatever miracles we can work as clinician technicians. We've been talking about this at the 3,000 foot level. What about the 10,000? I, I, I'm curious here, kind of the role of, of, of spirituality, too, at the end of life. I know you worked at the Zen Hospice Center for a long time in San Francisco, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and I'm curious uh, how, how that, how kind of the spiritual dimension has played into your life, too, being around death for a number of years now. You know, everything I've just said, really, could, you, could, you could chalk that up to a sort of a spiritual lens. It's interesting, I, you know, I don't know what word I like, Religion, faith, spirituality, they're all importantly different. They get used somewhat interchangeably. And it's, I, I feel, for, my, for me, spirituality points to or, or you know, connotes basically a, a, a belief or a faith that we are connected in ways that we can't necessarily see or prove. That's, for me, what, that's what it's about. And so I feel my, my, my spirituality is, is, is exactly that. I, I believe that we are all connected, not just pe- person to person, but person to tree, person to chipmunk, person to whatever, that we're all part of something that we can't possibly fathom. And as smart as we are, there's still so much we don't know. 
So there's got to be some deference to mystery, some deference to not knowing. And you can, you can look at that void or that abyss or that mystery and, and project uh, judgments and uh, fire and brimstone in there, or you can project uh, sort of a universal love or whatever have you. It's your call. For me, I happen to basically believe that in general, adjectives and qualifications are a human invention. But one way or another, it does seem to me, I look it out at that mystery, I feel all that connection, and I see love. I see um, sort of humility in all that we don't know and yet are totally a part of. Um, so for me, so just to kind of ground us, that's what I mean about, that's what I mean by spirituality. And you can imagine how much that comes up when, when you're dealing with patients and families and just friends and, you know, anybody at the around, around vulnerability, around loss or the end of life. You know, if, if I can sit with a patient and say to them, hey, you know, and they're, and they're in the throes of wondering what's going to happen, maybe scared about what's going to happen when they die. I'll often end up just talking with people about mystery and about not knowing and, and say, well, you know, hey, hey, Jonathan, I don't know either. You know, I've been around death and dying for a lot of, a lot of years and a lot of people, and I still have no idea. And, you know, isn't that amazing? You know, I, I have to say when I look up in the night sky and I can see all these stars and light that's hitting my eyes that left that source billions of years ago, etc. I mean, empirically, there's enough proof of connection among us or fascination around us that I'm, I'm, I'm coaxed into a, a faith that love is somewhere binding us. And even if it's not the natural order, it's certainly something that we can put in there. We can inject love and meaning into this into this mystery and so sitting at the bedside talking like that with people and just never mind talking about it it's just loving the person and there's there's a permissiveness at the end of life that i've become kind of addicted to because you know if, if you're with someone who's only going to be around for a while for so long you you can kind of quickly go to the vulnerable place. You can quickly love someone without fear of, gosh, if I tell my love them, they're going to get expectations or they're going to blah, blah, blah. I don't know, whatever. You don't have to talk yourself out of this very simple thing of loving someone. And I find it very easy to to love people at the end of life. And that's saying more about me, about my fears of loving someone upstream when there's all sorts of time for there to be repercussions and misunderstandings, et cetera. But at the end of life, if I can say, hey, Jonathan, I don't know what's coming either, but I'm going to sit here with you and we'll walk up to the edge of that abyss with you and I'm not going to go anywhere and I'll be thinking of you even after you're gone. And you know what? I love you. I just can't believe we get to share this planet at the same time. Isn't that amazing? You know, and I tell you, normally, for the most part, that that's that's pretty darn well received. And I think of those as spiritual moments. Dr. B.J. Miller teaches at the University of California, San Francisco, and is president and counselor at Metal Health. We really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate you guys talking about this big stuff. Still to come, how do other cultures handle death and bereavement? We'll hear from a traditional Native American practitioner and a mortician that's ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We're continuing our discussion about what death has become in our modern society. We just heard Dr. B.J. Miller describe, in very humble terms, the privilege and love he feels sitting at the bedside of someone at the end of their life. Now we'll explore if there are other practices and rituals that would help us find death more meaningful and perhaps less frightening. Our next guests say it's time to look beyond the Anglo-American practices of funeral homes where it's all about hiding and sanitizing death. 
Larry Sellers is a traditional practitioner with Osage, Cherokee, and Lakota tribes in Oklahoma and performs end-of-life ceremonies. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's an honor. And Caitlin Doty is a mortician and founder of the Death Acceptance Collective, The Order of the Good Death. She's also the author of From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find the Good Death. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Well, I guess I want to get both of your thoughts on culturally where where we're at with death in America. You know, I think this topic has become so important recently with the COVID outbreak. And I think, you know, we're beginning to see and sense death around us a lot more than ever before. But at the same time, it seems that our society wants to run from it. And we're so, you know, obsessed with youth and preserving life for as long as possible. So, uh, Caitlin Doty, I mean, where does your mind go when we start to have this conversation? Oh, well, we don't have a four-hour lecture here, but I think what I always find fascinating about specifically the American way of death is how successfully we've hidden death. Bodies, dead bodies, go to funeral homes or industrialized crematories. People who are dying are hidden away in hospitals or nursing homes. Even our animals are taken to slaughterhouses, so we don't even see where our meat comes from anymore. So never in history has there been a society that is so successfully hidden away death. And Mm. I think that's caused innumerable problems. Larry Sellers, would you agree that this is something we really have have learned to hide from? Uh, Yes, I I think for the most part, the uh, masses, they they have this thing about being afraid of death and it's not a part of their lives, so they hide it. And then they make uh, more out of it than what it really is. And in traditional cultures, there isn't death. There is only a change of worlds that you go from this world because the human spirit never dies, and you go to another world and it has tasks and things to do over there. Mm-hmm. In dominant culture here, uh, they, they make everybody afraid of death, whereas traditional peoples, we look at it as a, a part of that life cycle. and in that transition, in that crossing over, uh, it, it's one to be celebrated. The only problem is, is that as humans, we get selfish and want that person to stay here no matter how much they suffer or even no matter how much they want to stay here, mm-hmm. you know, or go. Caitlin, you know, I, I, I know you have a lot of thoughts on this as someone that's literally traveled the world, has spent time with indigenous cultures. For you, what inspired kind of digging into these different traditions, perhaps similar to the one that Larry just described there? I think it's the exact reasons, as Larry was describing, looking at how we can see death and its place in our life differently. Mm -hmm. So in indigenous cultures, or even back to hunter-gatherer cultures, what we see is that there is not this obsession with keeping people alive at all costs. Keeping people alive at all costs, really, we've seen the rise of it in the 20th century, in the 21st century, with industrialization and technology and capitalism. When our society switched over to that mindset, that's also when we switched over to absolutely nobody can die. And it's a medical failure if someone dies. Mm. And we've taken away this idea of transition and this idea of ritual. Because when you have something like transition and ritual in place, dying isn't so scary. It isn't such a terrible, horrible, fearful thing. And... I think that by looking at other cultures and not being so incredibly ethnocentric and so incredibly we do it right here in America, you can start to see that there are other ways to die that maybe would cause us less pain Mm. and less of a fraught relationship with death during our lives. Yeah. Is is there one that you could just pick for us in your travels that for you, really presented a different approach, uh, one very different from the kind of the the American model, I guess, kind of in the European Anglo tradition. But but for you, what what comes to mind there? I think perhaps the most profoundly different thing that I saw was a ritual that happens in a very rural part of Indonesia called the Manene, and it's where a group of people take out their dead from their graves. They're mummified dead. This is years later after the death has occurred. And they redress and clean the mummies. 
And it's not just a housekeeping type of thing. Mm -hmm. It's also they're communicating with these people. They believe that the spirits can still be embodied in these mummified bodies. And it's a very almost casual reunion. It's, hey, this person has brought you some cigarettes. Your daughter's mm. going to come visit you later. She's coming in from, from Makassar to see you. How have you been? How has the journey been? How are we helping you along on the journey? It's this casual and very meaningful continued relationship with the dead, which is something else that we, I mean, talk about all the things we've lost. We've lost that kind of intimate connection with the dead body itself. We've lost that connection with any sort of afterlife or transition or, or furthering on of the soul. These are all very profound things that, that we've lost in Western culture that we almost don't even know are still going on in so many places around the world. And when we do hear about them, we go, oh, my God, ew, they're dressing mummies. Oh, mm -hmm. how disgusting. <laughs> it's like, no, they have this profound, meaningful relationship with their dead. Wouldn't it be lovely if we also had that? Yeah. You know, I, I was just kind of reflecting as you said that, and I thought kind of how beautiful that notion is. One uh, one in which you can have an ongoing relationship with the person that died. Um, I find that to be extremely comforting. Larry Sellers, is that kind of more in your tradition, that idea that you can continue that relationship with the spirit even beyond even beyond death? Uh, yeah, you can, you can continue to have that relationship. It's just there's some uh, cultural uh, no-nos or taboos that uh, some indigenous nations, uh, at least on continental U.S. here that I'm aware of, that uh, uh, forbid you cannot use their name. You can use a kinship term, uncle, brother, sister, mother, father, but you can't use the name. It's forbidden to use the name because technically what you're doing is calling them back from that spirit world to here. And in that, with some people, say in my situation, if I do that, then there's got to be somebody else cross in order to take that person's place hmm. in that other dimension, in that other level. And so I definitely cannot do that. And so what happens is you can have that relationship. You can talk with them. You can, you can go in a room and what we do, what we call smoke yourself off with cedar or sage or sweet grass and invite that person in for the first year. They have that ability that human spirit has that ability to come and go when you call them like that. After that, then it's when they have information to give you or things of that nature. They may come in a dream mm -hmm. or they may come personally and tell you, but you have that, you still have that relationship. You know, one thing you said, Larry, also, and I've heard you say this before, is that um, at least I believe in your tradition that there's also this allowance that 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 one can be really emotional around death, particularly men, right? That they can cry, that they can wail, that they oh, can absolutely. really let loose. Because I find that to be very foreign to the world that I live in. Well, and, and I, I know my father, he was in World War II. Uh, growing up right after World War II, you know, it was men don't cry. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was taught when I was growing up. But then when you get into traditional culture and, and those aspects, then you find out that it is okay to cry. That's part of being human. That's part of allowing yourself to have those feelings and emotions to surface and allow you to be the most human and the better human that you can be. Because you get that out and it doesn't make you physically ill. It doesn't make you mentally ill. Uh, it, it really uh, reinforces uh, body, mind, and spirit uh, health. Mm -hmm. uh, and also does not tie the individual to this dimension. I mean, if you're in a, uh, a place where you need to be brave and strong, it doesn't really do much good to break down and cry. But if you're in a position where it's allowed, whether you're in mourning or whether you're in celebration, you're emotional about something, you're proud of someone, it's okay to cry. Yeah. It's part of being a human being, a multidimensional being. And that's what we find in, in the dominant society is that oftentimes they don't allow you to be complete. So it causes an imbalance. Yeah. 
Kaylin, back, back to you here. I, I, I want to kind of continue this, this, the importance here of ritual, this idea that, that we, it's something we have lost profoundly um, uh, in this dominant culture and, um, and that we don't even have the spaces any longer or, or even know what to do or the language to find or the people to ask to kind of be, to be the shepherds in this process. Can you say more about that? Absolutely. But but first, I want to say that I totally agree with what Larry said. And I was looking at a study recently about people who see or are visited in dreams by people postmortem after they've died. And the fact that in cultures that recognize that and that have a connection with their ancestors, they're able to be much more open about it. But it's actually happening all the time to people in the United States. And whether you believe that's a scientific brain thing or a legitimate afterlife or or carrying on aspect, it doesn't really matter. But it's happening much more often than we think, but we're just not allowed to talk about it. And if your culture is saying you don't have any relationship with the dead, you cannot see them, there are no ghosts, there are no spirits, and you cannot cry... Mm. which we can all agree that in the dominant like Anglo-American culture, that's the message that we're getting. It means that these kind of meaningful things that may be coming up in the, in the months after someone dies, the desire to, to see an apparition out of the corner of your eye or to have someone in a dream or to cry, if you feel like you can't do any of those things, where is the healing? Where is the journey that you're allowed to go on in your grief? Um, and I think that, to your question, ritual plays a huge part in that. What I end up focusing on is the idea that engagement right after death, and specifically for me, engagement with the dead body itself, is primal, it's timeless, and it can help your grief journey so much to be able to be present with the dead body and care for the dead body because that's what humans have been doing for tens of thousands of years in in all different cultures and the fact that we've pathologized the dead body we've said it's dangerous it's scary it's filled with bacteria it's probably decomposing none of which are true we've made the dead body something that can only be handled by professionals for a quite a lot of money, for tens of thousands of dollars, as opposed Absolutely. to something that can be done in your community or by the person's wife or by the person's child. And that, in fact, if the family is involved with care for the dead body, it can completely transform how they feel about the death. And they can feel empowered and they can feel connected and they can feel like they were there at the very end. And that's, that's one of the things. And, and also something just as a plug for this, it doesn't have to be religious. If you feel mm-hmm. like you're a modern secular American without much of a connection to a religiosity or that you've lost it, you don't even need that. It's, ritual can be a religious if you still believe in what you're doing and you're doing a physical action. It can still be powerful and important and it can represent a transition. That question of of being with the body, I think, is fascinating. You know, I, I think of when I've lost family members. I mean, part of the the confusion is that that they just kind of disappear. They're gone because you have no connection to their body anymore. And I'm just I'm just kind of thinking this through right now. And I think you're absolutely right, Larry Sellers. Uh, can you talk a little bit about kind of the importance of being with the body in your tradition? Oh, absolutely. It's important to be. Uh be with with the body of the individual. I had a daughter that passed and crossed over last year. I'm sorry. Uh, in fact, it would be a year in November 28th. And so it, in a large degree, I'm still in mourning. Even though I lead ceremonies and stuff, there are times when I do not get that opportunity to do that mourning or partake in that because I'm too busy helping others or dealing with others in, in crisis. Uh, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And so being with that body and helping that body make that transition. And we've been uh, affected by the uh, U.S. law of uh, keeping totally practicing our cultures because we're required in large part to encase our family member or person who has, who has crossed in a, in a either a metal case or a concrete case inside of a a casket rather than a natural burial. Right. You know, only a few places are allowed around in, around the country that are allowed for 
natural burials. And so if you want a natural burial, you have to go there rather than be with your relatives here. Uh, being around that body helps you process that uh, that transition. And it helps you know that that person is uh, taken well care of by the family members and the people who, who were important in that individual's life. And that was important in your life. Emotionally and psychologically, it helps you make that separation because you're helping them make that transition. Hmm. And so you make that separation with a good heart and a good mind. We, we operate from a concept, and when we do stuff, we operate with one heart, one mind, whether it's uh, in a ceremony asking for help or whether it's uh, helping a person cross over. One heart, one mind is a lot more powerful than a thousand individuals with several different minds. And so when everybody's focused on the same thing, then it's a lot more powerful. But I do have to agree with uh, Caitlin that, uh, yeah, it is important to make that transition with the body. Uh, and because of uh, Euro-Christian uh, capitalism, then the problem arises where, you know, it, it's about money rather than, and law rather than about the individual and about the family. Well, the reason, if I could just follow up, the reason that the body has to be encased in concrete or metal is so it's easier for cemeteries to landscape. Hmm. And if you can kind of take that in, the idea that we are somehow, or cemeteries are refusing indigenous cultures their ability to just go straight into the earth, how wild is that? How inappropriate is that? Mm. And we need to be engaging these policies and in some places laws and saying that's unacceptable. People should be able to, if they want open air funeral pyres, they should be able to have that. If they want platforms to, to bury people in the open air, they should have that. If they want just simple burial into the earth, they should have that. And it's it's always shocking to me that we feel like our funeral homes and our funeral societies get to determine what happens to cultures that are different than the dominant right. Anglo-American right. culture. What's the conversation been for you right now, Caitlin, as we are amid a pandemic? We're seeing people dying in, in very isolated ways, um, out of their control, out of their family's control, and a complete lack of community. How have you been taking all of this in? I think people expect me to say, we've learned so much about how you can grieve away from everyone and how you can, you know, you don't need to take care of the body. You yeah. can have memorials online. Mm. And in fact, the opposite is true. I think what this has revealed to us is just how important community and body care and engagement are. I think the fact that it's been taken away from us and that power has been taken away and so few people are even able to go to funerals mm -hmm. or p participate in taking care of the body has made us angry. And there's so many places in our culture where we've looked around recently and gone, hey, wait a second, this system doesn't work for me. I don't like this. It doesn't work for people who are unemployed. It doesn't work for people who are marginalized. It yeah. doesn't work for people who don't have the right health insurance. And I think it also doesn't, the dominant funeral system and the capitalist funeral system does not work for everyone. And I'm not happy that the pandemic happened, but I am excited by some of the discourse around it and people saying, wait a second, we, this is our dead. This is our community. This is our dead. And we want to be more involved mm. with what happens. And when we are able to do so, we won't give up that power again. Yeah, well said. Um, Larry Sellers, for, for you too, I, I know you're on the, the Osage res Reservation. Um, I, I wonder how you have also been thinking about some of these themes of death, of ritual, of burial in the context of, of COVID, which I know is, is, is extraordinarily isolating. Culturally, it, it's devastating because the people don't get to do what they traditionally do whether they practice uh, traditional beliefs in Native American church or whether uh, Christian beliefs or whatever, it, it's hard to deal with that, that demise of the individual and process that and come to a complete balance in, in mourning. And amongst the COVID, you know, it, 
by not allowing people to be there. I mean, they're encased in, in, in a casket, other than just the fact that maybe it's the close personal contact that uh, they're worried about passing on the, the virus. It's, uh, I, I see no reason why the cultures cannot, you know, participate in what, what the uh, people at the funeral home uh, say we can and cannot do. You know, it, it's like they have power and control over our culture now because of the virus. And that's something that, uh, that can't be changed uh, after they've already been buried. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a problem because, I mean, traditional peoples, we have ceremonies after that where we can help those individuals that we have not been allowed to be around. And those helpers that we talk to, they're the ones who deal with that and take care of that and help that individual make that crossing and that transition. And a lot of people of the Native American church and the Christian beliefs, are, are they're not allowed to do that. And they may or may not have that ability or that concept to and understanding to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, Caitlin, um, as we kind of wrap this conversation up, for, for those that, that are wanting to kind of rethink the system, um, I don't know, what, what kind of practical advice do you have for people that are, that are kind of dealing with these big questions right now? Where, where, where should they begin? I think begin by questioning your assumptions about the dead body you've probably grown up only going to funerals where there's an embalmed body in a big casket surrounded by flowers, wearing a suit, wearing makeup. You go up and tap it on the hand and sit down and call it a day. Mm -hmm. Question your assumptions about that. That's not the way that it's done in other countries. That's not the way it's done in indigenous cultures. That's not the way that death has to be done. And then from there, if you agree with that, and that's not what you want for yourself, research things like, like Larry said, natural burial. Research home funerals. Research family-involved or community-involved death care. Research these things that, that by the time someone you love very much in your own life dies, you could have a completely different perspective and a completely different ritual that you take place, that takes place when that person dies. And just just start in the way that we're questioning so many of our assumptions about the dominant society. Do that with death. And I promise that it will pay dividends in your life. Larry Sellers performs end-of-life rituals with Osage, Cherokee, and Lakota tribes in Oklahoma. Thanks for the time. Well, thank you. And thank you, Caitlin, for all the great information. And Caitlin Doty is the author of From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find the Good Death. We appreciate the time. Thank you. Well, that's all for today. You've been listening to Life Examined on KCRW. The show is produced by Andrea Brody with digital support from Jennifer Wolf. You can learn more about the show at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined and download the show wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and we'll see you next week.